Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. February 3rd, 2012, night. Charcoal gray, the old fortress stands alone, a perfect square of stone rising from the barren landscape. No plant cracks the hard dirt that surrounds the structure. Nothing living can be seen or heard. The air is still. No light breaks through the clouds. It is neither day nor night. Suddenly, Someone is here with me, a presence familiar yet strange, perhaps friendly, but clearly dangerous. This person lingers on the border of shadow and light, compels me to go into one of the stone, square stone turrets placed on each corner of the unadorned fortress walls. I stand on the ground floor of one of the windowless turrets. In the center, a narrow staircase encased by light spiral steeply into the shadows. The stairs and walls are etched with spider webs. Go, says the faceless man. Slowly, I ascend the steps. I worry that the man will attack me from behind, try to shove me over the handrail. I can no longer see the ground, just the beam of light surrounding the stairwell that blurs and gradually fades into darkness above and below. I finally reach the top. The staircase leads to a dead end where thick and impenetrable concrete forbids access to where I want to go, above, onto the rampart set against a moonless sky. Blocked, I turn to go back down. When don't you go first, I ask the man, who I never clearly see. No, he replies sharply. Proceed. One by one, I climb the stairwells inside the fortress turrets. They look the same. Each has an identical blocked end. As I mount the last stairwell, I'm completely alone. I want to flee, run back as fast as I can. I press on. My fear and anxiety build. The light fades. Ahead, I can only see dense cobweb tangles and handwriting on a wall. The print too faint to read. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Genocide Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host today, Jeff Bachman, a senior lecturer at the American University School of International Service. Thank you all for listening. That was Alex Hinn reading a dream from his new co-authored book with Tony Robin titled Perpetrators, Encountering Humanity's Dark Side, published by Stanford University Press in January of this year. And we will talk more about dreams as we move into our conversation. But first, Tony, welcome to the show. And Alex, welcome back for a third time. Can you start us off by telling our listeners a bit about yourselves? Yeah, why don't I start off? My name is uh, Tony Robin. I'm a um, professor emeritus at um, Utrecht University. Um, And um, originally, I was an economic anthropologist and did uh, research in northeast Brazil on um, pluriform fishing 
uh, industries and canoe fishermen and boat fishermen, etc. And while being there, I had to uh, renew my uh, my visa every half year. And uh, that happened to be uh, during the um, the dictatorship in Argentina. I would go to Argentina, renew my visa, and return. And um, while I was at the uh, at the finishing end of my my field work, I had to go to Argentina again and saw what was happening. Participated in a major demonstration uh, against the dictatorship after they had lost uh, the war against uh, the United Kingdom over the Falkland Islands. And uh, this stayed with me during um, the writing of my dissertation at the University of California, Berkeley. So when I uh, finished my, um, my studies at Berkeley and went to Michigan, I thought about my research in Argentina, and I wrote a couple of um, research proposals and uh, uh, fortunately got funded by the National Science Foundation and the Guggenheim Foundation. Uh, and that made me uh, go to Argentina in uh, 1989 for two years of research on the disappearances, the mothers of the Plaza de Mayo, and the perpetrators, the generals and the officers who had um, ordered the uh, torture and uh, enforced disappearances of, um, of uh, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of people in Argentina. Now, one of the reasons I think that I got the research grant, at least that's what they told me at, um, at the Guggenheim Foundation, is that... Everybody at the time was studying the human rights organizations, especially the mothers of the Plaza de Mayo. But nobody was studying the perpetrators. Nobody was studying the generals and the admirals and the brigadiers uh, that had masterminded this, this um, you know, massive killings and massacres of, of uh, Argentine citizens. And uh, at the same time, this approach was also what got me into contact with the military. Because when I met the first general, uh, and he asked why I wanted to talk to him, and I told him, I said, I want to hear, I want to hear the other bell sound. I want to hear the other side of the story. Because everybody's talking about the mothers of the Plaza de Mayo, but what is your story? And uh, this... Um, allowed me to connect with increasing numbers of, uh, of Argentine military. And that eventually led to, a, um, to my first book uh, on Argentina, uh, Political Violence and Trauma in Argentina, in which I focus on four groups, the human rights organizations, the church, uh, the military, and the former guerrilla organizations. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, what has been picked up mostly in the academy is my work on these um, military, on these uh, perpetrators. So ever since, I'm in this uh, in this field. Thank you, Tony and Alex. Yeah, <clears throat> and wow, I you know you always find out. I thought I knew era much about Tony. I didn't know about the early origins and the fact he was an economic anthropologist, and I never, uh, I never could have guessed that. So that was a fascinating bit of uh, backstory, uh, you know. And in terms of the sort of basic information, uh, I'm a professor at Rutgers. 
uh, and I teach in anthropology. Um, uh, I also have a center for the site of genocide and human rights there. Uh, and we have a UNESCO chair in genocide prevention. So in different ways, uh, you know, a lot of my research is clustered around uh, the issue of genocide. My sort of origin story uh, is, is not nearly as interesting as his, but, um, you know, I was in graduate school. I actually, I guess if he began as a economic anthropologist, I began as a uh, psychological anthropologist uh, and still am one, but uh, have gone much more over to exploring issues, uh, you know, like political anthropology, public anthropology, other domains as well. That's always a, you know, a part that's there. But I was actually going to go to Cambodia. You know, at the time I was thinking about, I wanted to go somewhere, uh, you know, there was a country that was predominantly Buddhist, and I had narrowed it down to Tibet and Cambodia, uh, which both had interesting histories. And of course, uh, Tibet was impossible to go to. My Professor Frederick Bart, uh, you know, who, uh, anyways, he was a remarkable person. I think he did research in 13 different countries. Uh, he, he was amazing. Uh, but he was saying, oh, yeah, so maybe you can go to this because because of China, you know, wouldn't be able to go to Tibet. Go to this one place in India with a lot of uh, Tibetan refugees. And he said, it's very cold. Uh, you know, it's the politics there. But Cambodia peace accords into the Cold War suddenly uh, became possible to go there. I went into preliminary field work, but I was going to study um, issues like trauma, conceptions of the self, emotion uh, as a cluster of issues. And I still look at those things, but, you know, I, I'll never forget the first week I was there. Uh, someone was <clears throat> shot in the street. Uh, you know, I was going past the checkpoint. There were guns. I, I went to Khmer lesson. Someone had a gun. Uh, tucked into the side of their back of their pants. It was, you know, just guns, violence were everywhere. Looking at the classroom where I did my language lessons, up in the walls, you could see bullet, you know, the trace of bullet holes. It was just, you know, the genocide was everywhere. And Cambodia had a civil war uh, that continued afterwards. Uh, and so really that began to sort of transform my, my research project to focus uh, you know, on, on the genocide. And, uh, you know, when I was there for this preliminary field work, um, I was living with the family, uh, and the father talked about it and, and he, like so many other people, you know, asked this question, how can Khmer Cambodians, how could they have killed other Cambodians? And that actually became the title of the book and my project. Um, and that sort of led into, you know, everyone said, oh, Cambodia, well, you need to look at the Holocaust and this new field of comparative genocide studies was starting to emerge. Uh, and that sort of set my path forward. Um, the only other thing uh, I'll mention is, uh, you know, while I've done lots on Cambodia, I've also uh, started to do research on extremism in the U.S., uh, far-right extremism. And so that's a different uh, sort of valence. So the two, the two connect uh, in many different ways. So I look at the far hard right and the far hard left in, in a strange way. Some, you know, they, many people don't like the term, but there's a thing called harsh horseshoe theory. And the idea is the two ends meet uh, at their extremes. Uh, so I guess in some sense, I'm, uh, you know, I study where those extremes meet in different contexts. Great. Thank you, Alex. And, um, you know, 
for listeners interested, um, my interview of Alex uh, on his book, It Can Happen Here, um, about white power and the potential for genocide in the United States uh, can be found on my New Books Network page. Um, so can we talk a bit about the cover design of your book? Uh, you know, there's mirrored silhouettes. Uh, as far as I can tell, when I look at the cover, the main difference is just a slightly different hairline. Uh, and so can you... Did you have a um, you know input into the cover and why the mirrored silhouettes? Yeah, shall I start on this? Um, well, the thing is that it, how, how do you what cover do you put on a book that's called Perpetrators? There is of course the danger uh, of putting somebody like Adolf Hitler on on the cover, but then of course then uh, yeah, people in in the uh, bookstore will think, hey, this is a book about uh, Nazi Germany. So we basically said to the press, why don't you come up with some creative uh, cover? And then they sent us a photograph of um, the Second World War, of the British Library that had just been bombed. And you see all these books strewn on the, on the, on the floor. And we said, no, 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 that's not really it. Uh, so could you come up with something else? And then they came up with this design. And uh, when we saw this, we thought, hey, this is actually actually very interesting. Because... Um, the book is called Perpetrators Encounter Humanity's Dark Side. And the silhouettes are, of course, in the dark. But what, what does it actually mean? Who are these two silhouettes who are apparently talking to one another or communicating? Um, and th- th- that, is a, that is a major problem when interviewing perpetrators. Who are they actually? And the additional question, who are we? And where do we come into this encounter? And one of the things that is, that is, I think, characteristic of interviewing perpetrators is that um, what anthropologists call, they say when, when anthropologists do research, they say, well, you have to establish a rapport with um, the people you do research on. You have to have a good, friendly uh, understanding uh, uh, with your um, research participants, uh, a relation that is based on trust, and in this way you can access the information you want. Um, uh, but with a perpetrator, you know, this this trust doesn't really exist. That is at least my experience. Um, there is distrust in the relationship. And I can give you one example of that. Uh, When I did um, an interview with um, General Diaz-Bessone, we met in the the, uh, Army's Officers Club in Buenos Aires. And he took me to a room and said, you know, and he gestured towards a particular seat uh, for me to, to sit down. And I looked at this seat and I saw it had its back... Uh, uh, it's at its front towards the window. And immediately I thought he wants me to sit there because then he can see my reactions and he sits with his back to the window and I cannot see his facial gestures. I cannot see his nonverbal communication. So what I did, I sat exactly in the chair with his back towards the window so that he could not see my facial expressions during the interview and I could see his. So already from the start, there is distrust in this relationship. And with all the military and perpetrators I met, there's always this idea, what is this person going to say? What is he going to ask? What is his hidden agenda? Uh, 
Uh, he's and they say they think he's probably sympathetic to the mothers of the Plaza de Mayo, and he's against torture and all these type of things. So I think what this cover really shows is that you have a communication and a dialogue between two people who are suspicious of one another, who do not know who the other is, and perhaps do not know who they themselves are. Thanks, Tony. Alex, did you want to add anything to that? <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I think he, he covered most of the ground. Um, one, one sort of funny story is when I first saw the cover, I didn't see the figures. Uh, and so my first thought was Rorschach test. Uh, and, you know, which actually fits well, uh, with the project. It's like, what do you see when you see the cover? How do you read something? Um, so I had a a very different initial take on it. And then I was like, oh yeah, I think Tony said, oh, they're, those are two figures looking at it. I was like, oh yeah, I see them now. Uh, so anyways, I, I, but I like that because it has that degree of abstraction and it raises many different things. Um, you know, sort of going to the Rorschach test, uh, you know, another, all good covers have multiple readings, right? That's the great thing about a cover. It gets you to think, uh, and they did a fantastic job with this one. Um, but a different sort of valence is, uh, you know, the figures look kind of alike and it's almost like going back to this notion of Rorschach test, our projections onto the other things are shadowy. Uh, if you think of the motif of the shadow, right, it's our bag of projections that we carry carry with us. Um, and, you know, sort of just inflecting back to the dream I read, right, there's the shadowy figure who's there. And in that dream, as I talk about uh, in my chapter, uh, you know, I was about, to, I had just attended the final uh, sentencing of uh, the Khmer Rouge perpetrator who ran S21, uh, the Central Khmer Rouge Interrogation and Torture Center. And I was trying to f- <clears throat> figure out, uh, you know, how to write a, the book that became Manor Monster. Um, and so, again, the shadow, you know, it's our shadow, what we carry with it, seeing the other person. But as we do, we project. Uh, how do we read things? How do we understand things? Uh, and, you know, we actually begin the first two chapters uh, sort of take up this issue uh, with the spectacular perpetrator uh, and the seductive perpetrator. Uh, so, you know, anytime you have a cover that generates discussion uh, and sort of speaks to the heart of what the project is, I think it's a, a real winner. And I commend, uh, you know, the Stanford uh, designers for that. Uh, we're really pleased. Thanks, Alex. I, I, you know, you said different interpretations. I and mean, when I see the cover, I was thinking, you know, especially with the subtitle "Encountering Humanity's Dark Side," that the book is not perpetrators encountering, and sorry, encountering like the devil in human form, or like you said, man or monster. It's, you know, I see these two, and if, you know, if if you had two. You know, similarly dressed individuals, one being the interviewer and one being the interviewee, one being the perpetrator and the other not, um, you might not know which one is which uh, just by looking at them um, because they're not a caricature of, uh, you know, some, like I said, like some sort of devil in human incarnation. It's uh, they are human um, as well. And so I, I, I thought that was an interesting uh, thing with the cover as well. Yeah. The doppelganger. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. And also- and and the gender is also unclear to me. They seem to be two men, but it's difficult to to say. Now the book is, yeah, I would say exclu- almost exclusively about male perpetrators. So maybe 
these silhouettes are silhouettes of men. That's right. Well, yeah, because we're sort of on the topic here, um, you know, whether media, the public, or even scholars, why is it so easy for people to rely on binaries and caricatures of perpetrators? And is that in some part where the subtitle Uncounting Humanity's Dark Side comes from? Yeah, in a, in, in a way it is. It, it, the thing is that it, there's all, when, you, when you use the word perpetrator, you immediately get into the notion of evil and evil against good. Uh, and, and I must say, actually, we had originally as um, the subtitle Engaging Humanity's Dark Side. Uh, we, we were thinking more of in terms of an interaction, but then they came up with, well, maybe encountering covers the uh, the book better, and I, I think it does. Um, um, Alex, do you, do you have any thoughts on this, on this encountering and engaging? Yeah, you know, I my recollection, and this is always interesting when sort of thinking back to a project, is that uh, you know the we had fantastic uh, editors who were very involved, uh, ranging from the series editor Mark O'Dell to the the senior editor at Stanford and uh, other people who worked on it. Uh, we had fantastic reviewers. It was really you know it really helped us think through and and uh, the book in different ways and strengthen it. But my memory is they didn't like uh, engaging. And Tony came up with encountering. He, we were batting it back and forth. So my memory is that was your your idea. Oh, could uh, be, could be. Have that. So uh, it's I, I like it better as well. Uh, you know, with the binaries and caricatures, we take that up uh, at many different points of the book. Um, you know, the sort of first part of binaries, uh, and I talk about this some. Uh, you know, in here, uh, you know, that's basically the way humans organize uh, reality, right, is through the use of categories, binary oppositions. It's a theme that I took up in Manor Monster, actually, that's at the heart of it, of articulation, redaction. Um, so that is absolutely central uh, and also speaks to uh you know, I've talked about this a little bit as well to, you know, for example, Adorno from the Frankfurt School, uh, who always had to struggle because he was, you know, he was pointing out we reify, right? And this is what creating binary oppositions are, or caricatures, they're thingifications. But to speak and to think, we have to thingify. And he always struggled with this sort of paradox, right? Because even as we talk about categories, we categorize. Uh, and so sometimes he would couch things and say, well, if I have to, you know, I'll struggle through, maybe I should use this. And education after Auschwitz, he does this uh, at one point uh, before he gets into the detail and sort of caricatological uh, typing uh, that came out of authoritarian personality. But I, I think that's one of the struggles that perpetrator research have, and we're already using the notion of the perpetrator. Um, but we do, you know, one way we approach it is through those initial chapters of the spectacular perpetrator and the seductive perpetrator and getting into these issues of projections and preconceptions that we have that mediate uh, our encounters uh, with perpetrators, the way we interact with them, what we project onto them. Uh, and it's, you know, with this subject, it, there's a lot of potential projection that can go on and certainly people audiences are get caught up with that as well um so we we tried to bring that to the forefront of the book uh, and immediately problematize it both in the introduction but also in the, the first section on interviewing perpetrators 
Yeah, and if I can, if I can add to this, divided into three sections on interviewing, dreaming, and writing about perpetrators, uh, and that's the first of the three. And then there are interspersed creative writing uh, sections uh, between between those, and then there's a final uh, culminating uh, sort of afterward that's a guide. If if I can add to this, uh, it's of course a perpetrator is our term. Because the people we interviewed don't see themselves as perpetrators. They see themselves as as patriots. They see themselves as people who are liberating uh, their populations. They see themselves as people who sacrificed their lives for the good of the nation, of the people, etc., etc. So, uh, and here again, you come into this binary. Because within their own countries, uh, they are... Uh, regarded as heroes by those who uh, approved of their methods. Uh, I don't know about if that's the case in Cambodia, but certainly in Argentina, you know, many in the military see them as heroes. And those Argentine military that are in jail right now, um, they're, they're, they're considered as political prisoners, while the human rights movement of course, sees them as perpetrators, as people who are guilty of crimes against humanity or even of genocide, as some of them say. Yeah, there's some interesting differences, uh, lots of similarities, but you know, a lot of the framing in the Cambodia context is we're, we were victims. And so at a certain point there were, you know, we were cracked, uh, you know, in the Khmer Rouge, we're still fighting as a guerrilla movement, but uh, now you get in the context, especially with the tribunal, the victim discourses. So the perpetrators are victims and everybody points upward to the next person uh, as being responsible. Even Nguyen Gia, brother number two, pointed up to Pol Pot and said it was all all his fault. Uh, anyways, that's the other sort of paradox. We talked a little bit about uh, the circumstances, the the violence in in each country. Um, as you write in your book, justice was delayed, and um, I wonder, you know, if you could talk a little bit about why it was delayed, but also has justice actually been served or what form of justice has been served by the proceedings in each of the countries? Yeah, let me start with with Argentina. Um, To make a very, very long historical story very short, Argentina has been plagued by numerous um, uh, military coups. And um, the next to last one was between 1966 and um, 1973. And this is a period where uh, actually the, the, the armed violence started in Argentina, especially around 1970, inspired by the Cuban Revolution, especially also by the North Vietnamese. So this was a time when the military started acting against these insurgencies, being trained by uh, uh, you know, by at the um, what's called the School of the Americas, also trained by the French, a little bit by the Israelis, and started this counterinsurgency against these um, guerrilla movements. So, in 1973, the uh, uh, the country returns to democracy. Um, uh, one group uh, stops its violence, and the other group, a Marxist group, continues and says, well, the time is ripe for a revolution. And that's when the military step in, in 1976. And that's when uh, the dictatorship starts. And they said, well, we have to really uh, uh, eradicate this root and branch. We have to, as they say themselves, literally, we have to annihilate the enemy. 
And this happened till 1983, these disappearances, etc., etc. And in 1982, they have this disastrous war against the United Kingdom in the Falklands, and then the military fall from power. So that is the situation. Um, and then comes 1983. And at the end of 1983, the um, elected president, President Alphonsine, decides that what is needed is a um, is a truth commission because everybody is asking the question where are these disappeared and there were talks that they were still alive somewhere so this truth commission we call it now a truth commission but it was in, in fact an investigative commission and they would go from military base to military base from prison to prison from police station to police station to see if there were people there who were disappeared and there were not and at the same time uh, President Alphonsine said well the military have to try their own the military tribunal the military supreme court has to try these commanders of these military juntas well they didn't they didn't. They didn't. They, they didn't have enough time. They said, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So then, the president and the Supreme Court, the civilian Supreme Court, said, "Well, that in that case, it goes to a criminal court." And that's when you have the first trials in Argentina, a prominent trial in 1985, two years after the military fell from power, and this was a trial against the members of the military juntas and five of them were convicted three of them to life sentences and this accelerated the number of trials against the military but at this time there were two forces that were opposing this you know this implementation of justice this accountability on one side there were the military who said listen we are being tried for things that we did for the good of the country and these acts of torture were actually executed by lower rank officers without the approval of those higher up. So those higher up, this commander said, we're not responsible. And on the other hand, you had President Alphonsine who felt that the country was going to be politically unstable if these trials continued. So what you see is that a country that nearly as one of the few countries in the world um, uh, actually prosecuted their own, the armed forces, uh, this process was stopped. This process was halted. Um, and the process was renewed in 2007 when new trials were started up again. And so the question was just served in Argentina. Well, it was a stop and go process. Uh, and as of today, there are more than 1000 military officers in, in, uh, in prison, uh, serving lengthy prison sentences, many of them uh, 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 life sentences. Uh, so in this case, we could say that in Argentina, justice has been served and is being served because these trials are um, continued. Thank you, Tony. Alex? Yeah, you know, I'll be uh, pretty brief. The So, you know, the first answer of why was it so delayed it basically was because of geopolitics and the Cold War. Uh, and so after the Cold War, you know, the history is Khmer Rouge were deposed in 79, 
Vietnamese soldiers came over, uh, provided the bulk of the force uh, that toppled the regime. Uh, Vietnam was then linked to, the Khmer Rouge were linked to China. Vietnam was linked to the Soviet Union. Uh, so in the midst of, uh, of the Cold War, there was no way to, to have a tribunal. The, Khmer, the new government did hold a, an absentia trial of Khmer Rouge leaders that was very short, uh, but there wasn't any sort of substantial justice. But there were you know, some initial things were going on with memorialization. Um, but it wasn't until after the Cold War that uh, the possibility of, you know, for example, having a tribunal began or a, a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. There was memorialization that was going on. There were educational initiatives. Uh, but if we think of justice in the traditional legal sense, uh, finally, they negotiated uh, an international UN-backed hybrid tribunal uh, that was uh, always going to be problematic uh, for different reasons, including political influence. It was held, you know, which is true of a number of these uh, tribunals, international tribunals. Um, but it did get going uh, and it uh, held in the end, uh, you know, it put on trial five people uh, in the end. Uh, two of them were left to be uh, through the appeal process. Several of them died. Um, and the question is, you know, and tribunals take a long time. Uh, and this tribunal oper- operated from 2006, uh, just closed. Um, a lot of people have critiqued it, but it's also done, uh, you know, a lot of good as well. Uh, and I think when people think about, you know, is justice served? Well, it depends on your expectations and many different groups and people have different sets of expectations. Um, my, uh, I always thought that it would have, uh, you know, deliver some good things, clarify the historical record, hold the top leaders accountable. Uh, but anyone who hoped for some magical justice, just like the chimera that begins the first chapter <clears throat> on the spectacular uh, perpetrator, it's uh, imaginary thinking. You know, Derrida had it, I think, right, uh, though he, of course, was abstract uh, in the Derridian way he always was. But he, he said, you know, justice is always to come. It's always going to be in the future. It's never as an abstract ideal fully uh, actualized in particular concrete uh, moments, uh, but it you know but it works towards that and it's an aspiration and so you know some good good was done, uh, but again the sort of basic answer is it depends who you ask and and what they're expecting. Thanks, Alex. Yeah, and you know you mentioned um, you know the, the chapters on spectacular and seductive perpetrators. Now, um, could each of you talk about uh, spectacular and seductive perpetrators, and also um, this tripartite model uh, that you actually adjust to include, uh, rather than killers, uh, perpetrator facilitators? Could you talk about that for the listeners? Yeah, maybe Tony. Do you want to do the uh, the introduction with the tripartite model? I should. Yeah. Uh, let me let me start uh, briefly with the seductive uh, perpetrator. Uh, why seductive? Well, uh, what got me onto this uh, was actually one of uh, when I had interviewed. Uh, I think it was a politician, and a friend of mine said, "Well." That person is, he's a seductive politician. And I said, what do you mean with that? And uh, so we started talking about this. And so I came up with this notion of seductive uh, perpetrators. Uh, those are people who, who are so capable uh, and, uh, 
of of leading you astray from your questions. Um, so they establish a very friendly atmosphere, and uh, they try to lead you away from the questions that you actually want to ask. Um, uh, and and you must understand that most of the perpetrators I interviewed in Argentina uh, were um, commanders, so admirals and generals and brigadiers, uh, and that's the, and the reason was that I was interested in the higher echelon uh, and less in the uh, the echelon of the people who actually tortured the tortures, because much has been written about that in the literature. And this gets me to this tripartite uh, model. There, there exists a whole bunch of models. Um, what we liked in this tripartite model uh, that distinguishes between um, perpetrator architects, you could say the ideologues, the one who, who think it up, uh, the organizers, the one who actually implement, uh, you know, uh, operationalize these ideas, and then finally the facilitators. Now, the tripartite model that we use doesn't use the term facilitator, it uses the term killer. Uh, and we didn't like that. And the reason is, is that if you go to the lower echelon of perpetrators, the ones who actually torture the one who kill, they have a division of labor. Um, uh, not in all situations, of course, but at least in Argentina and in some other societies where some do the interrogating, the, the enhanced interrogation is sometimes called, uh, the torture, and others do the killing. And, um, uh, and, and what has come out of research is that, you know, horrible as it sounds, it's easier to kill somebody who you don't know. Well, if you're a torturer, you establish one sort of relationship with the one you torture. And then it becomes harder to kill that person, although sometimes a person is killed accidentally and then it would be considered a loss. So that's why we we prefer the term facilitators, because not only the ones who torture are involved uh, and the ones who kill are involved, but also the ones who who, who guard uh, the uh, the captives. Um, I know of physicians who uh, delivered babies of um, blindfolded, disappeared mothers. Uh, physicians who stood by uh, during the torture session and determined whether the tortured person was still strong enough to endure more torture. And if not, then they would say, well, let's let's take a break for an hour or so and see if the person um, recovers and then you can continue. They even had charts where um, they could uh, they would see, well, if a person has a particular weight, or especially in the case of children, then you can only um, uh, use so much voltage of your electric prod while torturing the person. So there's all sorts of people around these, these uh, uh, you know, could say people, uh, perpetrators who are low on the hierarchy, who facilitate the actual um, acts of perpetration. So that's why we prefer the term uh, perpetrator facilitators rather than than killers. And uh, to, to add w- one more anecdote, I once uh, told uh, I once um, told a, a general about in Argentina about a lieutenant colonel that I had interviewed who said uh, that he had uh, admitted that he had interrogated and tortured captives. 
So then this general blurted out, well, then he must be a sadist. Because uh, uh, the thing is that uh, Lieutenant Colonel is not supposed to do these type of things. Why had I forgotten to tell him that the person I interviewed used to be a lieutenant during the dictatorship? So here you already see that there is this division in this hierarchy among, among perpetrators. And that makes it complex because people can also switch from one category to the other. Um, one general I interviewed was an ideologue of the military. He was a architect, but he was also an organizer. He was a commander of an army corps. So we use these three uh, levels uh, as, as heuristic tools rather than, uh, you know, a definitive um, uh, representation of what perpetrators are. Thanks, Tony. And Alex? Yeah, yeah. No, I, uh, I'll... Try and be brief here because I know we have limited time. Uh, you know, I'll just say quickly. Uh, you know, one way to think about the tripartite model. Uh, if we go back, and part of the reason uh, we wanted to foreground the dream at the beginning is you can almost think of the three levels, like that spiral staircase, and you're down at the bottom level, right? Uh, amidst the action of the perpetrator facilitators, you move up to the mid level. Uh, and the fact you can traverse shows that movement between the different levels and then, uh, you know, at the top, uh, the top level as well. So that's just a metaphor that is a one way to think about it. But as you rise up, uh, you go higher or lower. As you move, you lose sight potentially of the other levels. Uh, and so it's a way to also think about the need to understand enmeshments as you even as you do research on uh, if you're doing research on one level uh, or another. Uh, the in terms of. Uh, Spectacular perpetrators, uh, you know, I think I talked about that earlier uh, in terms of this, you know, the assumptions that someone doing research, but also readers and people who, you know, to say the word perpetrator immediately conjures up a certain image. Um, but perpetrators of genocide and mass violence in general obviously are associated with horrific acts. Uh, and, uh, you know, Tony mentioned before Hitler. Uh, as, a, as an iconic image, there are many others. Even think of Valdemort uh, from uh, Harry Potter or, you know, fictional characters. They surround us. And so we all, when we think of people who do these horrible things, images of evil. Uh, and that's the, you know, I began by talking about the search for this chimera, uh, imaginary fiction. And part of doing the research is grounding. And if you go back to the cover, uh, you know, trying to enter a space of humanity with another person, even uh, if they've done horrible things, uh, and to have a dialogue and try and understand uh, that person, even as you, of course, uh, abhor what they uh, what they did. Uh, and so, you know, I think that's a through line in the book uh, that we that we have and that we want to convey to uh, readers is the necessity of both, uh, you know, sort of self-interrogation to understand our presuppositions, uh, but also the need to uh, move beyond this first chimera, this first uh, notion of the spectacular perpetrator. Thanks, Alex. And I, I, something you know, Tony said kind of leads into the next question I have. Um, the, the story about uh, you know the person who's uh, sort of above the rank of someone who would who would torture. Uh, you know, the question I, in some ways, I think of is: Are all torture sadists and are all sadists um, potential torturers? And uh, you know, from your experience interviewing um, your perpetrators. 
have you uh, I don't have you gained any insights into perpetrator traits that might be different depending on where they fit into the perpetrator tripartite? Yeah, that that tends to be uh, you know in sort of the literature very there are very very few sadistic people or sociopathic people uh, people you know could have tendencies. Um, so that's also part of the the need of understanding the projections. Uh, is to not immediately assume is that's just the sort of ready explanation that many of us have, right? That only a sociopath or a sadist could do something like that. Um, but, uh, you know, we have Christopher Browning, uh, who underscored the ordinary quote unquote men hypothesis. Uh, and it may have, you know, some weaknesses to that because it kind of bleaches out human personality, uh, to an extent, but it gets this notion and it's a, you know, this is something that's difficult for most people to accept that, you know, at least this is my view, Tony can say if he shares the same view is that the capacity to do really awful things resides within all of us. And the first step of prevention is to make people aware of that capacity, both in others and in themselves. Too often we want to say, oh, that's a sadistic person, a totally unlike me. But the processes and dynamics that lead people to participate in projects of mass violence. You know, there are also things that are all around us all the time. You know, the way we watch media, spectacular images, the way different people are demonized, uh, the language that's being used, uh, everyday bigotry. Uh, those things are all around us. We're enmeshed with them. Uh, and the one big difference, right, is within a context of upheaval, uh, and when a regime, again, there's lots of variation, gets sort of souped up, charismatic leader, these different factors go in to create sort of extraordinary circumstances. But those extraordinary circumstances, like the word extraordinary, right, has the ordinary in it. And uh, that's the uh, sort of lesson, you know, in my teaching that I try and talk about. I, I talked about Adorno's Education After Auschwitz, which is uh, one of my favorite essays to teach. It's difficult, but it sort of makes this point. Right. Those things that led to Auschwitz are present now. They're part of the world in which we live. And so it's absolutely imperative not to push it away and act like it's something completely different. Um, but, Tony, what, what are your what are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, you're very eloquent on this and I agree entirely with you. I, I just want to add a few things is that uh, when I talk to um, to Argentine military, they always made. It's clear to me that a sadist was not a good interrogator. Uh, it had to be a technician. Uh, had to be not somebody who who enjoyed it. And as a matter of fact, I remember an excerpt from uh, that you know much better than I do, a handbook of interrogation or torture uh, of the Khmer Rouge, where it actually says you're not supposed to enjoy this. Uh, so, so that's first. So, so sadists are not good interrogators. Uh, secondly... There is a there is a, a selection process, at least in Argentina, that um, commanders realize that one person is better in interrogation and the other person is better in hunting after uh, uh, political activists or uh, is better at uh, securing the ground. So there's all this 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 division of labor. 
uh, among perpetrators at each level, as a matter of fact. Now, some, some generals are better at organizing the, uh, the repression and the, and the disappearances and the killings, and others are better in uh, supplying the, uh, uh, the special forces with uh, cars and planes and, and what have you. So, um, at least in Argentina, uh, it was important to notice if a particular person was effective uh, in the task that he was assigned to. And that, that made the distinction between, uh, between one perpetrator and, and another. Uh, and there were also generals who disapproved of these methods, and they said, okay, that's fine, you'll go into retirement. There were uh, lower-rank officers who said they did not want to do these things, and they were also sidelined. So at least in Argentina, uh, as as a matter of fact, uh, Browning shows in his book um, um, about the policemen, uh, they also had a division of labor. They also separated out those who could not stomach uh, the killing of Jews. So, and, and I don't know if that was the case in, in Cambodia. Alex can, can tell you that. Yeah, no, I think it is. You know, I just wanted to note one other thing about the structure of the book, uh, which, uh, you know, is experimental and in, in, in a number of ways. But one thing we do in the way we just uh, sort of had a little mini dialogue, we have interspersed text, uh, as we alluded to before, that is a thread through all the chapters where we break into the narrative flow of the chapter uh, and pose a question. Uh, so there's actually interwoven between the sort of self-contained chapters is a dialogue like this. Uh, and it's one of the sort of unique features of the book, I think. I think so, too. And I, I think it brings the book to life in ways that, you know, having this conversation like we are right now does as well. Um, so I want to ask a little bit about uh, what it's like to interview perpetrators. And, uh, you know, my wife, Jeannie, and I have uh, a guilty pleasure with Judge Judy or Judy Justice. And Judy oftentimes refers to disputing parties as, quote, unquote, doing the dance, meaning putting on performance of sorts in their testimony. When interviewing perpetrators, is there a bit of a dance between you and the perpetrators being interviewed? Yeah, I would I would certainly say so. Uh, of course, we as as interviewers are conscious of that, but the interviewees are conscious of that also. Uh, let me give you one one small example. I interviewed a uh, who used to be a uh, lieutenant colonel, and the moment I entered his uh, his room. Uh, he he pulled the drawer and uh, and put a um, uh, a revolver on the table, just like that. You know why? Why? It's it's kind of to, to set the parameters of the interview. Uh, it's 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 to intimidate. It's to show I have power. And of course, I did not expect him to shoot me or anything like that. But it, but but it was a, a way of intimidation. So in this dance, I asked, uh, well, because that's the only thing I know. Is it a nine millimeter? And he said, Yeah, it's a nine millimeter. And then and then immediately asked, Are you Jewish? See, see, these are this is part of this dance. So I said, well, you know, I'm Catholic. My name is Antonius, and I said, but are you Jewish? So, see, so, so there's this, there's this going back and forth. There's also uh, a way of calibrating your voice uh, when you ask a question that 
the interviewee considers improper, uh, he might raise his voice or cut off the interview or um, there are many ways in which each um, of the interlocutors tries to manipulate the interview. And that's why I, I talk about the seductive uh, perpetrator, who's, who, who's, who's very like a gentleman, very nice. Uh, would you like some coffee? How is the country treating you? Uh, if you have any questions or any problems, call me, I can help you. See, these are all ways of taking the sting out of the out of the interview uh, that makes you reluctant to ask you know uh, well you could say aggressive questions so there is definitely a dance there is there is a performance on both sides uh, taking place during the interview yeah the you know that uh, he Tony talks about that uh, anecdote as well, uh, you know, with the gun in the, in the text, uh, which is a fascinating uh, moment. Um, you know, that's funny, that's funny. Judge, Judge Judy, uh, the, you know, and, and thinking about the term performance, it's absolutely appropriate and it fits perfectly. And you, you have this sort of dance and performance. The one thing, which isn't to sort of dismiss the term or put it down is I think there's sort of a connotation, a romantic connotation to the word performance, uh, sort of an artistic connotation to it. Uh, and, you know, that's often not used, you know, in academic uses of, of that term. But I think in colloquial terms, you have these connotations that can sort of misdirect you from different things that are going on. And I, I think Tony just alluded to that uh, as well, that there are power dynamics and the researcher also comes to that context both in a way as a seductive researcher trying to get information. Uh, and, you know, so we have, and we actually have a, a, one of the sections of interspersed text gets into this about the seductive researcher. I, I asked uh, Tony about that. Um, so it's going sort of both ways. And there are many times when it's not this sort of, sort of romantic, beautiful performance, but you're talking about things that are absolutely awful, uh, upsetting, death, you know, of, of the worst sort. And so I would just say that you know, it's absolutely a performance, but it's a, a performance that often is one that's kind of down in, down in the gutter, if you will, uh, because of the content and what you're talking about. The one other part of it and again, there are different points in the book where we know lots of similarities, but there are also points of of difference in the two contexts. Like a lot of my research was actually in the countryside. A lot of Tony's was in the cities. Uh, we talk, we actually mentioned gender uh, earlier and we both, because of our positioning, but for different reasons, we're unable to interview, uh, you know, because of gender norms uh, to take up the issue of gender as much as we would have liked. Uh, so there, there are these differences uh, that emerge at different points in the book, but um yeah, I, I think in the end, uh, you know, I, I expect Tony would agree that we don't want to romanticize the performance uh, because it's a it's a very sticky, murky, difficult, uh, you know, topic and the exchanges that go on. Uh, and in Cambodia, going back to those differences, one thing is, you know, if you ask someone directly a question like, did you kill people? People will shut down. Uh, so 
the way in the Cambodian context often to approach it is to do lots of background research so you know what took place when you get there. Uh, but sometimes to just ask uh, one step removed, oh, the people that were working with you, you know, why did they do X as opposed to saying, why did you do X? Um, so they're all, they're all, all sorts of issues that are, that are going on in this uh, dance performance. But as I said before, it's one in which the material, uh, you know, it's, it's difficult, dirty material and the researcher gets soiled by it uh, in some sense. And that's actually something I talk about. And actually Tony talks about in a different sort of way in the section, second section of the book on dreaming. Uh, part of it's like, what's the impact and how do you deal with this, with being sullied uh, with the content and these difficult interviews? Yeah, and as we know from how you started us off today, um, these exchanges and experiences can, can infiltrate your dreams. And I believe this is the first time I've read a book by scholars of genocide and political violence where, where their dreams are discussed. And though in different ways, you both seem to have been at least somewhat prepared for your perpetrator research to infiltrate your dreams. Can you talk about this? And also, Tony, you write that to ask Argentine perpetrators about their dreams would be too personal and suspect in a country where dream analysis is common. If you were to have asked about their dreams, what kind of responses would you anticipate and what effect might asking such questions have on the interviewer-interviewee relationship? So starting off, just about talk about the inclusion of the dreams and then also uh, about you know the, the specific context and how you both were in, in different ways prepared for this. Yeah, what got me into this, this, this whole topic of dreams is that when I got to Argentina, I very quickly realized with friends and people I met that everybody was in, in analysis, in psychoanalysis. Uh, there's actually one large neighborhood of Buenos Aires, it's called Villa Freud, which, says, which already says it because there's a lot of psychoanalysts there. So what I did, I thought, well, if that is so important culturally in this society, why don't I go into analysis myself? So uh, I did interviews with a number of analysts and finally chose one. And uh, we met three times a day on the couch. Uh, you know, I'm me lying on the couch. She's sitting behind me. And then, of course, dreams come up because dreams are one way of access to the unconscious. Uh, and then I, I soon realized, uh, and I kept a, a dream diary also, I soon realized that there were many dreams that are that were related to my research. Now, if if I would have asked a perpetrator about his dreams, I I expect that this that this person would you know quickly become very suspicious of my research and basically shut down because he knew as an Argentine um, what analysts can do on dreams. And of course, uh, if if he he would tell me, uh, you know, a, a number of dreams that he had, then I assume again, this is my assumption. Then I assume that he would think, aha! So he will get to me. He will get to myself. He will try to discover who I am through the dreams I had. He will do some lay analysis on these dreams, or he will ask some of his leftist friends, as they assumed, who's an analyst, to then analyze my dream. And and, and that's the reason why I, I didn't ask them about their dreams, but I did use my own dreams in analysis um, uh, to understand much better what my relation with perpetrators was. And that's exactly what I do um, in our book, that I, I tell a number of, of dreams. And then uh, also, 
write down what my analyst said about those dreams and what I thought about those dreams. So there's my own lay analysis and then there's the professional analysis by the uh, by the psychoanalyst. And this helped me greatly in understanding what my approach to perpetrators was. And also it made me understand much better how much um, uh, my identity as being a European, as being somebody from the Netherlands, as being somebody who, um, you know, through my parents and relatives, heard a lot about the Second World War and the Holocaust, etc., etc., how that had influenced and, in effect, biased my research in, uh, in Argentina. So dreams and analysis helped me in that sense. But um, I, I, I put the barrier when, once it came to the dreams of the perpetrators. Thanks, Tony. And Alex? Yeah, you know, I think uh, Tony covered a lot of important ground. Um, but uh, in terms of preparation, um, you know, I talk a little bit. I actually, uh, you know, my father's a psychiatrist. Uh, my brothers are psychiatrists. So I come from a family of uh, psychi- you know, psychiatrists, talking uh, therapy, talking about topics uh, that often would make many people uncomfortable and having sort of odd uh, dinnertime conversations because of that. Uh, so I think that, you know, that's one thing that prepared me to do this sort of research, even though, uh, as I talk about in uh, the chapter titled Ruin, uh, and as I just alluded to before, you know, we're as human beings grappling with this content and it's really important to be aware of it and how it impacts you. Uh, and also to, uh, find a, a way forward, uh, to work through it. Um, it's a, it's a topic that, you know, there are a number of people who want to avoid, they don't want to have anything to do with it. They don't want to read about it. They don't want to think about it. And I, you know, I understand that. Um, so the, but there are, you know, a group of people for different reasons, uh, go on and take up this topic and study what are often horrific things. Um, and, but there are things they have to deal with. And so in different ways, and through this focus on dreams, therapy, uh, the sort of impact on, on the self, um, you know, hope this is part of our goal is to provide based on our experience for Nisa's practical wisdom that we've gained, uh, and grappling with this topic. I think more broadly as well, the stuff that we're talking about can be applied, uh, to sort of difficult ethnography of different sorts, not just, uh, you know, something that's specific to perpetrator research, um, because there are many other topics that are difficult. Uh, so, you know, it inflects more broadly. It's not a, a, but we explicitly not a methods book, but it does take up issues that are important for people doing uh, ethnographic research on a variety of different topics. Thanks, Alex. And, you know, talking about advancing perpetrator research, uh, you know, you end the book uh, with a guide, uh, with a series of guideposts. Um, can you talk a, a little bit about these guideposts? And, you know, I previously uh, interviewed Shel Anderson and Aaron Jesse about their edited volume where they have a code of practice at the end. And um, so could you sort of talk about what uh, the guideposts add to uh, what, others, what others are doing to advance perpetrator studies? 
Yeah, you know, it's been, there, there was no field of perpetrator research, uh, or it was initially predominantly uh, in the field of Holocaust studies in some sense. But more recently, the last 10 years, there's actually this field's emerged, handbooks, journals, uh, and a real interest in it. And their uh, book is one of a number that have come out and, uh, you know, they're doing exciting research. They have interesting essays in there and they finish with this code of uh practice, but it's, you know, it's pretty different in one sense. It's a little more what they're concerned with, very important questions. Uh, You know, they sort of go and talk about ethics, uh, but they lay out a series of questions. Uh, You know, I think at the beginning, the first one is, you know, what does your research, uh, what's it going to offer that's new? Um, Our uh, sort of guide at the end is more abstract and it's embedded specifically in what we talked about in the book, as opposed to, uh, you know, an edited collection. Uh, and we talk about subjectivity, uh, abjection. I, you know, as I, I mentioned, ruin the dreams, that's one theme. Um, composition is another thing which speaks to the writing, how we then out of the material, the archives, the corpus uh, of uh, material that we gather, how do we curate it, which is another level of, uh, you know, sort of intense self-examination that uh, researchers need to undertake. It's also something, uh, you know, I have a chapter called curation, right? It's a a form of cure to help you work through, narrativize uh, these difficult fieldwork experience you've done. Another guidepost uh, is critique, sort of always critically interrogating. Uh, a lot of what we talk about as well uh, is craft. For example, the craft of interviewing, uh, the craft of writing. Uh, so craft is another thing. And throughout all that, uh, you know, constantly recognizing and thinking about the limitations uh, of the research we're doing. So you know, we mentioned a couple of times gender uh, because of our ethnographic situations. We were able to do less on gender than we would have liked. Uh, so it's always to think, you know, where are the gaps, uh, where what areas weren't we uh, as ethno- ethnographers, perpetrator researchers, uh, not able to get enough information. And then, of course, to seek out uh, ways to fill those gaps, uh, for example, by the work of other scholars. Uh, so, you know, I, they have a set of uh, important but very specific questions. Ours are much more are more abstract uh, and in keeping with this theme of phronesis uh, or practical wisdom that uh, the two of us uh, that have interviewed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people uh, and, uh, you know, that we've gained and done intensive research in the field on this topic. Uh, so that's, you know, that's part of our goal for Nisa's captures it, practical wisdom. Uh, and so our, at the end, our guide takes up, uh, these sort of three, six different guideposts, uh, that can, uh, help people sort of backlight the book and think about what we've written. Yeah, let me add to this that uh, very briefly that our book is not a, a how to do guide. It's not a field guide. It's not you know you got to do this and this and this and this uh, because as you've already noticed, Jeff, from this this conversation, that we have we, we come from very different backgrounds and we have different experiences. And um, what we try to do with these signposts, with the, this practical wisdom, is to to bring to the fore um, questions and issues that are very complex and that are very difficult and that have to be solved by each researcher in their particular research setting. Uh, These are kind of reminders, think about subjectivity, 
for instance, when you do research and see how this works out and how you cope with that and how you deal with that. Uh, and, and how about dreams? Well, um, uh, not everybody remembers their dreams and there's a difficulty of analyzing dreams, but there's also daydreams that people have. And uh, we encourage um, uh, researchers to also write down their daydreams, which may be more accessible than, uh, than, than night dreams, nocturnal dreams, and then do some kind of lay analysis on it. So these are simple things that, that we raise that people pay attention to this because you will uh, run into these problems during your research and there will be ways to solve it, but you have to reflect on it and how you will do that in your particular case. So it's not a how-to guide, but it's rather a more of a, a reflective text um, for, for, for researchers. Thanks, Tony. Thanks, Alex. And uh, you know, my my last question uh, is is in some ways a reflective one. Uh, Alex, we've discussed this previously. Uh, this is not your first foray into creative approaches to writing about genocide, political violence, persecution, and your experience as an anthropologist and public scholar. But I do believe this is the first time you've done it with a co-author. And uh, so, you know, looking back, how was this writing experience different? And then, Tony, for you, um, was this your first uh, experience writing a book in this style? And how did you experience it in comparison to more traditional writing projects, if so? Yeah, you know, that's an interesting question. Um, so, yeah, you know, it was fascinating. And what I really appreciated was, you know, we all come into things with our habits uh, and being used to doing things in certain sorts of ways. And what having a, uh, you know, a co-author does is it's someone who can help you pause, look at things differently, shake up and break out of those habits and try new things. I can give you one example. Um, when we were, uh, after getting reviews and comments, uh, this idea of having interspersed text, <clears throat> I, I was resistant. I, I like the idea of self-contained uh, chapters um, and you know, it seemed to me to be disruptive in the flow. And so I was initially uh, a little reluctant to do it. I think I said, why don't we just do it all at the end of chapters? Uh, and Tony pressed and said, no, let's, let's give it a try. Uh, and so we tried and it was a fantastic experience. So if I had not had a co-author and someone to press me, uh, you know, we wouldn't have, I, you know, that would not have happened. Um, so I think it's this, you know, it's it's really exciting and interesting. And as well, when when I've written my other books, uh, you know, I'm doing that completely alone uh, with no one to talk to. And so we were corresponding by email all the time, talking to each other, conversing. Uh, everything was kind of coming into shape, commenting on each other's chapters. Uh, so it was really I really appreciated the, uh, you know, the engagement, having someone to constantly sort of push in new directions uh, and I think, uh, you know, the, like I, I could not have written a book like this uh, on my own. Uh, it took a collaborator and a, you know, a fantastic, brilliant collaborator at that uh, to produce the book. So I'm anyways, I'm very grateful and I certainly recommend that to other people.
Yeah, well, you know, similar to me, uh, um, for me, Alex has been a great inspiration and his work has been a great inspiration. Uh, when I think of Man of Man or Monster, The Trial of a Khmer Rouge uh, Torture, this is this is a really unique book uh, with a very free and, and creative style of writing. For me, this is the first time that I actually uh, uh, did this. And uh, it's, it, there are two reasons for that. One is the, the encouragement with an, an inspiration that the work of Alex had offered. But also, I do realize I'm not a native speaker of the English language. And for instance, I have a, in front of me, I have a dictionary, uh, which is a guide to collocations and grammar. You know, where do you put your prepositions? Where do you... And for me, the English, especially since, since you know, I returned to Europe in, uh, what was it, 1991, uh, I'm farther and farther removed from the English language. I'm not immersed in it anymore. So for me, writing in English is, is a struggle. And although I do read a lot of literature and everything, to do then creative writing is is difficult, uh, but at least uh, thanks to uh, to Alex's encouragement and his inspirational work, I'm now, uh, especially since I'm retired, uh, I take more liberty in uh, in writing. But it's it's difficult. It's difficult. Well, thank you, Tony, and uh, and I'm glad Alex was able to to inspire you to to you know um, be a part of this work. And uh, with that. Uh, would you like to close us out, Tony, by reading an interlude from the book? Yeah, I will. And actually, uh, the, 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 this really falls upon your on your question because I, I would not have been able to write this uh, four or five years ago. Um, what I'm what I'm going to read now is from an interlude of the book, and uh, the, the interlude is called "For the Sake of the Fatherland," and the subtitle is "A Creative Nonfiction Testimony." And it's been inspired by the way. Alex uh, uh, writes. So let me start. This is this is a, a testimony by uh, General Diaz Bessone, who was uh, a perpetrator, architect, and organizer, and commander of the Second Army Corps. And it's it's a thing I wrote uh, on the basis of interviews I had with him, uh, in which he justifies uh, what happened during the dictatorship and and the disappearances. The revolutionaries were the ones who started the aggression. If I am attacked, then I have the right to defend myself. This natural right leads to the doctrine of just war. The Argentine government asked us in 1975 to annihilate the enemy, and that's what we did. We did not repress the subversion, as is often said, but we waged the war. Repression means to restrain, to contain. Repression is the task of the police and the security forces, The police are ordered to detain a person who is then tried by a judge. One doesn't order the security forces or the police to annihilate a criminal. One only orders the military to annihilate. Annihilation means war. The Allied forces bombed German cities and nuclear bombs were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Many innocent people died there. These people had nothing to do with the war. The justification was that a lesser harm was done to prevent a greater harm, namely a prolonged war that would cost the lives of many American soldiers. And this is why every time Argentines talk about repression, we say there was no repression, there was war. Until 1975, 
only the police was involved, not the armed forces. Our just war was waged against an enemy that tried to impose an alien ideology on Argentina and do away with our freedom. All totalitarianisms are abominable, fascism and communism. The values of Marxism are incompatible with Argentina's Western values and Catholic faith. This was an ideological conflict, and that's why war was inevitable. They wanted to establish a socialist fatherland, a Marxist-Leninist fatherland, like in Cuba. There is no freedom there. Revolutionary justice rules there. There is no equality before the law, no economic freedom like in Argentina. Argentine guerrillas also wanted to do away with private property. We had to stop them. Thank you, Tony. Thanks for reading that. Um, and, and thank you for this incredible book. I do highly recommend uh, you know, that our, our listeners check it out. Uh, there's so much more in the book. I, I know we talked uh, about a lot of it, um, but there's so much more to, to get from the book. And um, you know, congratulations on its publication. And you know, as we close, uh, Tony and Alex, um, again, thank you for your time. Um, is there anything uh, that you're currently working on that our listeners can keep their eye out for in the future? Uh, I'm actually working on Anne Frank. Do you want to uh, add some more context to that? Yeah. Well, um, what many people do not know is that Anne Frank wrote a diary uh, uh, between um, um, July, between June uh, 1942 and August 1944, and then. Um, in uh, March of 1944, the Dutch government in exile in London uh, said on the radio broadcast, they had a 15-minute radio broadcast every day, they said, well, people in the Netherlands should write down their experience of German occupation. So that's when the hiders who were hiding together with Anne Frank ran to her and said, hey, you have this diary, you know, uh, why don't you write this into a book? So that's when she, in, in, Mar- in May 1944, she started to rewrite her diary. And this is the second version. And then when her father, Otto Frank, the only survivor of these hiders, returned to Amsterdam and was given these two versions of the diary, he took them and rewrote them. And this is the diary that everybody reads. But of course, there are differences between these three. And one of the differences is that the second version contains many metaphors about her emotions in uh, the secret annex, as it's called. So I'm, I'm working on this and trying to understand what this secret annex actually did to these people who were living there, these, these material surroundings. How did these material surroundings influence them? So that's the work I've been doing right now. That's really interesting. And I'm, I'm glad you're still at it in retirement, Tony. And what about you, Alex? Yeah, thanks. Uh, great, great question. Um, so most recently, um, a few different things, uh, but uh, maybe I'll just mention two. Um, I'm working on uh, white replacement, great replacement uh, as a project. Um, and part of that project, as part of that, I recently went to uh, a meeting in the U.S. Uh, where a lot of Trump supporters were there uh, and did a little eth- ethnographic research on it. Um, but that's part of a, a bigger, bigger project. Um, 
And I also, uh, sort of in keeping with this book, I have a, I, I'm working and now it's going to be published uh, actually on April 4th uh, in the online platform on the seawall, uh, a creative nonfiction piece, fully creative nonfiction uh, that is about my encounter uh, with, a with a perpetrator, torture, uh, interrogator uh, at S21 prison. Uh, and it uh, talks about what the experience was like uh, as we met, uh, you know, deep in a jungle. Uh, and it's, it gives a very, very different way of sort of understanding what perpetrator research is actually like. Uh, it's called Paul Pot, Pot's Secret Prison. Um, and uh, well, anyways, if anyone's interested, they can look it up uh, on the seawall, uh, Pol Pot Secret Prison. Uh, but that, uh, so I'm, it, it sort of takes things I've been doing yet another step further in terms of uh, creative ethnography. Great. Thank you. Thank you both again. I look forward to, to reading your forthcoming work and uh, it's, been a, uh, it's been a joy. Um, thank you again and, and take care. Th thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Jeff.